And now I, I will introduce today's guest. On many fronts, Canada is having quite a year. No sooner are we wrapping up the Olympics in Vancouver than we're starting on the G8 and G20 summits in Ontario. Events like these are shining a significant spotlight on Canada, establishing a world presence that can attract new interest in the country, boosting tourism, investment, and development. All good things. All things that mean change. Another good thing, if we're ready for it and can manage it properly. Three years ago, Walter R. Mead, a thinker and writer in the area of foreign policy, said this. The first 20 years of the 20th century saw as much technological progress as the entire 19th century. Industrial societies appear to be doubling their rate of technological process, progress every 10 years. If this continues, and there is every reason to suppose that it will, the 21st century will experience the equivalent of 20,000 years of normal human progress. Now to that add this. According to the United Nations, in the next half century, Canada is expected to be the third largest recipient of the world's net immigration, after the US and only slightly behind Germany. Our population is aging and our birth rate is low. We know that immigration is the only way we can build the skilled and educated workforce that we're going to need to attract investment and economic growth. But how will we cope with rapid and sweeping technological change, as well as an increasingly multicultural and expanding workforce, and have it work to our advantage on the world stage? Our guest today has had the chance to examine this issue from a number of different perspectives. Best known throughout North America as Canada's ambassador to Iran and an international hero during the 1980 Iran hostage crisis, Ken Taylor has had a remarkable career in both the public and private sectors. Mr. Taylor's name leapt back into the public consciousness with the release in January of Robert Wright's book, Our Man in Tehran, and its headline-grabbing revelations of international intrigue. As a diplomat, Mr. Taylor's been responsible for trade development in Guatemala, Detroit, and London, foreign aid matters in Pakistan, crisis management in Iran, and promoting Canada and our image in New York and abroad. Mr. Taylor has served as a vice president at Nabisco, again with a focus on international interests and relationships. He was the chancellor of the University of Toronto's Victoria College. He is a recipient of the United States Congressional Medal, and he is an officer of the Order of Canada. As a public affairs consultant, Mr. Taylor has advised governments and private firms on international and global issues, investments, and political risk. Today, he'll give us the benefit of much of that expertise and experience, sharing his thoughts about Canada's possibilities in an increasingly globalized and complex world, and what it will take for us to strengthen our place at the table. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Ken Taylor. Thank you, Nick, the sponsors. 
the dinner, Marsh. September 1954. I arrived in Toronto on the Canadian after three days, three nights, two days from Calgary on my first year here to attend the University of Toronto across the street. Out the door, and behold, there is at that time heralded the largest hotel in the British Commonwealth, the Royal York. Decades later, I'm delighted to be inside <laughs> with friends and also as a guest of the Canadian Club members and as well as their guests. Um, you look at the history of the Canadian Club and you can imagine the people who have expressed their views from this rostrum. Prime Ministers, Grammy Award, vocalists, journalists, scientists, all of them one way or the other expressing their views, their exhortations, and maybe, maybe if you're lucky, some confessions. When you attend a public luncheon like this, you, you, I, at least myself, think back of a letter that Winston Churchill wrote to his wife when he was touring Canada in 1929. The dinner was hosted by my home province of Alberta. He wrote to his wife, he said, we had cold water and boring speeches, <laughs> but some good friend put something better in my tumbler. I'm sorry I can't duplicate that with your own friends here, but however, one way or the other, I think we'll have a good time. Now, before making a few brief remarks on where Canada is and where we'd expect or hope to be, I'd like to address some to individuals at the head table, and that is first my, my wife, Pat. Um, Pat and I spent seven assignments abroad, one in Canada, and I think that when I first talked to Pat about getting married, about serving in the Foreign Service, I conveyed the idea that just read Travel and Leisure. Read Holiday Magazine. But one way or the other, I think that Pat would say, well, that was fine, we had some of that, but really you should have given me field and stream, outdoor life, extreme sports, or maybe Ripley's Believe It or Not. I'd also like to acknowledge Alan Gottlieb. Um, when I was in Tehran, Alan was Under Secretary of External Affairs. In simple terms, he was my boss. And with Michael Shenstone, his associate, who was in charge of Middle East Affairs, those of us in Tehran felt good. We were confident with his sensitive, intelligent, and if called upon, imaginative leadership. Alan, it was uh, good memories and a good conclusion. By coincidence, several years later, Alan was ambassador in Washington and I was consul general in New York. And I sometimes in my mind can see Alan going down a list. Let's see, Smith is in Boston, Jones is in Buffalo, and New York again? <laughs> but it was a good experience on both sides. Um, the luncheon today gives me a chance to more or less trace the Canadian diplomatic experience, um, some of the factors that have influenced Canada's destiny, um, and then turn largely to um, what the diplomat does today, and then where our diplomatic efforts are primarily focused, 
that is, with sometimes horrified fascination, the Middle East. Now, that should take us to roughly 4 o'clock. <laughs> At that time, there'll be an hour for questions, and then we'll be on our way home. But if you're looking back at Canada's diplomatic history, from the late 1800s right through to 1920s, we really had very little independence in the realm of foreign affairs. Essentially, it was managed by the British Foreign Office. However, getting one way or the other cool to imperial um, oversight, what have you, in 1894, Canada opened its first trade commissioner office in Sydney, Australia. The minister at that time, Mackenzie Bolwell, with some audacity and enterprise and benefit to the country, as trade ministers have recently, I'd think particularly of George Hees and Ed Lumley, proposed a conference of colonies on Pacific issues. However, Boswell made the mistake of not informing London. London was quick to reject this aspect of independence, and essentially Lord Ripon, who was then secretary, said that if colonies are prepared and allowed to engage in independent negotiation, it would be the collapse of the empire. Well, 116 years later, Canada, one way or the other, although we're deliberate, we pretty much now got what we want. Time heals all. The aspect of, of further developing Canada's representation abroad went, went on, and um, really, by 1927, I think we had maybe a score of trade commissioner service offices abroad, and we had embassies in four important, four important locations. I'm sure you can come up with them yourselves. That is Tokyo, Washington, Paris, London. And then, as now, getting a suitable residence is always a challenge. Now, it's got to be suitable not only to suit your own requirements, but not so suitable that it exercises the taxpayer or necessarily cause any restless sense in the House of Parliament. So. Chester Marler, who was at that time during the 30s minister in Tokyo with Admiral Enterprise, decided after wrangling with Ottawa that he was going to buy and build the residence himself. So he put up $25,000 worth of his own money. He privately financed the rest. And there we have a Canadian embassy in, in Tokyo. The other footnote to it is that the piece of property that he bought is now one of the most valuable in Tokyo, and he was eventually repaid. But still, can you imagine today Ambassador Y coming into the undersecretary, waving a mortgage deed, and saying, hey, have I ever bought a villa for us? <laughs> Good enterprise, but probably wouldn't work. The um, the, it went on and until in 1946 the development of the department was created as its own independent entity and as its own um, minister in 1946, much before your time, Barbara. The, um, 
Canada had emerged from World War II as a confident player. It was time to assert its, its independence, and the world was ready for it. Now, you can take a cue from a popular BBC television series to picture, here you are in the East Block, a new minister, a new department, comes in, and here's the first meeting between the undersecretary and the minister. And it goes something like this, yes, minister. Welcome to the department, congratulations. First, you have to adjust to peace. Then you have to underwrite a new international order. Then you have to, one way or the other, develop a new commercial policy, create the United Nations, and then offer help to those countries ravished by war. And oh, incidentally, if you have time, open a number of new Canadian missions abroad. Now, of those new Canadian missions abroad, I happen to be at one of them, a modest office in Guatemala, Trade Commissioner's office. Um, there were two of us. We reported to each other. <laughs> and I, early on in my post there, I received a telegram in code, mind you, a commercial confidential telegram in code. I sat back and I said, yep, this is big time. This is probably why during, during the Foreign Service. So I then looked under my blotter for the sort of key to the safe, more or less deciphered the code, and it was from an exporter in Vancouver, <coughs> and it read, Order number 1027 to Garcia and Company is delayed. Please confuse the buyer as to exact date of arrival. <laughs> and that sort of has been the hallmark of my career ever since. <laughs> now, what a different world we live in now, what with the instantaneous communication, with the intellectual revolution of the, of the information age, it's um, quite a different world from those very innocent days in, in, in Guatemala. Um, the information overload, if you can use that, is, is typical of not only your own companies, but certainly government as well. And the business of information management, that is the proliferation of data, is growing. Everybody looks today to have a chief information officer. The chief information officer has a very prominent place in today's executive suite. And there's also a new type of executive that emerged, and that is the executive data scientist. That is, the data scientist looks at this mound of information and mines for gold and diamonds in the mass of this information. So it's essentially sophisticated quantitative analysis that is the name of the game today. So picture today's image in Paris. You have the ambassador, and then you have the chief information officer, and then you have three data scientists who are attaches, and then fourth down the line you have the minister, political. Whatever shape that, um, that takes. But the um, information is widely available. It's how you use all this information. And um, maybe T.S. Eliot had the, the proper question when he, <coughs> he said, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, 
Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Now, when you look back, Barbara, to your own career as, as Secretary of State, to others who, <coughs> who um, would have their own style as a foreign minister, maybe we can turn to Henry Kissinger, who in the December interview in Newsweek recited his own style. And, and he said, because I started as a professor, I was concerned with doctrines and theories. But professors don't always understand that as a professor, you have all the time in the world to write your book. As a professor, you could come up with one way or the other absolute decisions and absolute solutions. But as a foreign minister, you can never succeed in one issue in one blow. It's always a series of small steps. As well, you can say that the work of a diplomat is closed, as sort of, what would you say, broadened. You, you look at what you conceive as the traditional work of, the, of a diplomat, that is writing um, reports, dispatches, keeping track of, of what goes on, what the trend is, what does this have to do with Canada. But if you look around and you look at the world today, you see that reflected in a diplomat's work as well. You have the proliferation of weapons. You have biotechnology, biodiversity. You have terrorism. You have pandemics. It's a different and new world in, 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 um, in the scope of a, of a diplomat's daily work. And the diplomats today, I think, are somewhat more set to come to terms with the complexity which the world faces today. For instance, language training, there's a greater degree and a broader degree of competence. And because of the size of the Foreign Service, there's a greater opportunity to specialize in, their, in either sections or in regions. But the adventure remains the same. That is, it's not unlike the Vancouver Olympics. Diplomacy abroad is a competitive game. One day you're in a dash with the Germans to get to see first the foreign minister. The next day, you're cutting across the lane and elbowing out the British diplomat to see about a contract with public works. The time frame for a diplomat is somewhat different. The time for great strategic planning is 3 a.m. The rest of the time, the diplomat is best spent either on the road or on the street either in the theater, in the conference hall, in the office of the foreign minister, in the library, in a restaurant, or conceivably even in a bar. So one way or the other, you have a diplomat's um, full day, and it's always a competition. It's always how do you put your country's image first, because image is a weapon, one way or the other. Now, the key to a diplomat's effectiveness as well is the ability and opportunity to speak spontaneously to an issue, spontaneously to an opportunity to one way or the other describe your country. Centralized control of an embassy inhibits totally the diplomat's effectiveness. A diplomat is not going to embarrass his government one way or the other. Give the diplomat a broad guideline and leave the substance of the message to the person who's close to the action, one way or the other. 
Um, Daryl Copeland, maybe a, co a colleague, maybe of, of some of, of some of you in the Foreign Service, has just written a, a book on guerrilla diplomacy, rethinking international relations, and he calls for the transformation of a diplomat to a global globalization manager. He also concedes, however, that changing a soldier into a diplomat or a diplomat into counterinsurgency may be somewhat hazardous. Hazardous in a positive sense, maybe. So mention the word hazardous, and your thoughts, of course, turn to what was called the great game. Now, the great game is an area that was essentially the game that encompassed the Middle East. And the Middle East is as broad as you want to define it. For this purpose, I think you'd include Israel, you'd include Egypt, you'd include Iran, you'd include Central Asia, the Arab Asian countries, and Afghanistan as well. And this is the region in which Britain, through the Napoleonic Wars, tried to preserve their own road to India against first the French and then, of course, the Russians. So now, welcome to Great Game Two with new participants, the United States, China, India, and Pakistan. Now, Afghanistan, of course, remains the key, one of the keys to the great game where it was replayed valiantly by the British during the 1800s. But the concept, the policy in Afghanistan has changed from the Bush administration to from clear, build, and hold to clear, build, hold, and transfer. That's the key to the new NATO, primarily, approach to Afghanistan, the transfer. And General McChrystal feels that he now has a government ready, and reflects the views of the other NATO governments, ready to roll in. But it depends on the Karzai government as to whether this government that's rolled in either rolls out or rolls over. And that depends to a large extent to the degree Pakistan is prepared to one way or the other follow an, a NATO alignment, at least roughly and generally. Um, Canada, as we're all aware in this room, will face some very difficult decisions over the next months as to what will happen after the eventual troop withdrawal. You've all read in the newspaper that the withdrawal and a debate about the withdrawal of tr troops from the Netherlands contributed to the downfall of that government again two weeks ago. The wild card as the great game two unfolds, of course, is Iran. First, with respect to Iran, is we need to determine what is the nature and the objective of their search for possibly a nuclear weapon. Uh, the other aspect is that, is that what is their intention as to their predominance in the region? Um, simply put, do we want to, one way or the other, cultivate Iran as an ally, which it was for 30 years, or one way or the other see Iran as a destabilizing force in the Middle East. 
Now, logically following those two questions are whether or not Iran is willing, or even at this moment, able to negotiate an agreement. Secondly, is whether or not the P5 plus one, now I read in the newspaper that means the five permanent representatives to the UN plus Germany, is able and has the sensitivity to negotiate with the Iranians. So you really have two variables involved, Iran's willingness or ability and the P, as they call, plus one sensitivity as to how to deal with the Iranians. Because the world community is at the moment in doubt as to what the Iranian intentions are with respect to weapon procurement. Now, just in passing at the lunch today, um, no matter who asks, um, I'm just not prepared to go back to Tehran to verify their intentions. Um, two weeks ago, the United Nations inspectors, for the first time, ominously declared that, quote, they had extensive evidence that Iran has part or current, has in the past or at the, at the present time, made undisclosed activities to develop a nuclear warhead. Um, the report confirms that Iran has um, one way or the other refined uranium up to 20%, but they're not prepared to say or assume when or if, in fact, as the Iranians deny, there will be a weapon. However, you see now seasoned commentators in Washington changing their views. At the moment, the option is, of course, to introduce severe sanctions. We could be here till six o'clock to debate about the essence of sanctions, whether or not they work, whether or not they're appropriate. But some of the talk now in Washington has gone beyond that. The question now, and it was posed on the front page of Foreign Affairs magazine this, this last week, is what if Iran has the bomb? What then? Is this going to change the balance of power in the Middle East? Or will the bomb prove of any benefit to Iran in its search for some sort of regional predominance. The two writers, um, Lindsay and Teke, um, pursue a different sort of tact. They say that if they do get the bomb, this is something which we can deal with. They say what we need to do is again contain and deter, but a different kind of containment than that was, was typical of the, say, the uh, Union, Soviet Union, using the word containment and back to today. The, what is suggested, and it's becoming, um, again, part of the a growing talk in, in Washington, is that you draw a red line. That is, three red lines for Iran. That's it. The red lines would go, one, is no invasion of a neighboring country. Two would be no sale, transfer, or passage of either technical or material weapons relating to nuclear, um, nuclear um, uh, capability. The alternative, they say, would be one way or the other, equal retaliation by either NATO forces 
or the United States up to and including their own bomb. The ultimate red line would be drawn with the consequences made very clear to the Iranians. And the Iranians can realize their own limitations. There may be a very pragmatic aspect to that so that the idea that if the sanctions don't work, is this the end of the world, may not necessarily ring true. But given that consequence, you can see why the lights are on light, are on late in foreign ministries around the world, but particularly in Tel Aviv. Now, taking a step back and, and looking at the Middle East in general, I was reading an article the other day by Jeffrey Goldblum in Atlantic Magazine that um, said, after Iraq. And in the course of this, he asked the dean of Middle East historians, Professor Frumpkin, what is the future of the Middle East? And the professor morosely replied, the Middle East has no future. I'm not sure how his article ended. But possibly what we are looking at here is not a regional dispute, but rather an east-west confrontation from long, long ago. Our expectation was that after the Cold War, with the advent of globalization, history is finished. This is where we've achieved our limitation and our goal. The East, as defined formally, was, of course, communist. Now, of course, we're back to the days before the Russian Revolution when the East was defined as Islam. Um, the book by um, Mark, by <coughs> Tom Holland, called The Persian Fire, the, worst, the First World Empire in the Battle for the West, relates to the 480 war between BC between Persia and assorted Greek states. Now, you know the Greek states won. Now, if they hadn't won, there probably wouldn't be any entity called the West in the final days. Uh, maybe that would have been a, a, a good solution to our, to our dilemma. But here, 2,500 years later, where is diplomacy when we need it? We have the West with its values and its ideals, which they feel should apply globally. You have the East aggravated and discontented, the Islamic East, with the belief that a divine faith should be applied universally. Now, taking into the degree or the, the fault line between East and West and the horrific experience of the last century, how do we find ourselves out of this? What is the solution? Well, Tony Judd, who's a uh, professor at NYU, an eminent historian, he sort of said a very sage, but at the same time, very not very uplifting um, comment. His was that imperfect improvements on unsatisfactory circumstances are the best we can hope for. Now, I'd say these expectations are rather harsh for a young and dynamic country like Canada. 
Because in the, take for instance, one element that is the Middle East and Canadian representation in that region, we started back in the 1950s with representation only really in Egypt, Israel, and Tehran. Um, during the 70s, we added Baghdad, Saudi Arabia. More recently, we've added the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, and representation, extended representation in Oman, and of course, Afghanistan. But our diplomatic representation in that area is governed, in any area, is governed by the traditional mandates of what we would like to do, what we can do, and what we have the capability of doing. And that um, relates back, really, to what in our own embassy we could do in, in Tehran, what would we like to do, what could we do. Um, the thinking back, as this is a 30-year anniversary, it um, seems like a couple of days ago, as your own life um, passes quickly, too. And this was a situation which was a very simple situation. It was a situation where our closest ally, the United States, was under attack. Lives were at stake. International law had been flaunted. The international law that serves countries the size of Canada and Iran to a better fashion than it does, say, the United States and China. We, in Ottawa, at the post in Iran, offered the extent and help that we could, whatever we could do, to one way or the other, relieve the situation for international benefit and one way or the other for the safety and security of the Iranian, of those held hostage by the Iranians. I think the primary fear of everyone was that inadvertently or deliberately, if one of the US diplomats would have lost their life, the response and the natural response of the US would have been massive. One way or the other, a more of a surgical strike by say 90 commandos seemed to answer public pressure in Iran for what a lot of Americans saw as a humiliating aspect and the resolution of the crisis. Our own efforts were modest, but it was a simple story with a good conclusion. But what I think always rests in the mind of a Canadian diplomat abroad is that if the situation was reversed, without doubt and with certainty, we could look to the United States Embassy for exactly along the same lines the help that we provided to the Americans. Our diplomatic decisions as we move on, of course, I think can be guided by the wisdom and perception of three enlightened Canadian diplomats. That is Hume Rong, Norman Robertson, and Lester Pearson. During those days in 1945, when the United Nations was being created in San Francisco. Now, it came to be known, wrote Norman Smith, in the Ottawa Journal of June 28, 1945, that when Mr. Robertson, when Mr. Wrong, when Mr. Pearson put forth a suggestion, it was likely to be a good one, it was certainly not an old one, and it was unlikely to be a selfish one. Let that be our motto.
Thank you very much. We, uh, folks, we have time for one or two questions. And uh, our microphones are, there's one right there. So if anyone would like to ask uh, our guest a question, please find your way, raise your hand, and, and the microphone will come to you. We have one over there. What aspects should Canada's presence abroad take on in the immediate future? What, um, what assets? What, what aspects? Um, what, what role should Canada yeah. play in the future? In how should... How should Canada's uh, image in the immediate future change or stay the same? Well, I think, I think um, Canada's, as I mentioned earlier, it's a young, dynamic country. It should have ambitions and big ambitions. Um, at the same time, I think that we continue to support the initiatives of the United Nations. We work through the international forums that are available, the G8, the I-20, I'm sure we're going to have 35G, we're going to have a multitude of them. But at the same time, Canada is ready and able to pursue an independent role, which I think is gradually responding to the realities of the situation. Um, we've got uh, a, a unique mix as a multicultural country, such as Australia does. We've got a big, friendly neighbor, competitive, but a valued neighbor, and that I think we really, it is a time almost like 1946, I mentioned, when the Department of External Affairs was first formed, that Canada has now a time to take a significant step forward, both in terms of its ambitions, its accomplishments, and its image. It was a very interesting presentation and very diplomatic way you handled uh, a very sensitive subject. My question really is that there is a difference in culture, and I think as the president-elect said, there is an immigration, people are coming in. The red lines that you mentioned would apply to normal negotiations, but when you have people blowing themselves up and being educated in Harvard or Cambridge, whatever, that's the real challenge. Coming up, uh, following up with the previous speaker, how can Canada maybe more actively, because look at the Olympic Games. It showed that Canada, although a small population, is very talented. I think the most gold medals in the Winter Olympics. How can we more maybe aggressively, more effectively pursue that so that there is peace in the world? Well, I think it gets back to a matter of Canada survives and must think internationally. We're a relatively small country in terms of population. And one way or the other, although this is a, a, a ground-up effort, I, I think we should be asking our elected officials to think internationally. A number of them do, but the realities are local and close to home. But until young Canadians see themselves with a future as a Canadian internationally, the country won't have the necessarily stimulus or the necessary degree of ambition and one way or the other to see Canada realize its 
true identity as an international player. In, in concrete terms, we've already done that a number of times, Canada, either in war or peace, and as one of the founding members of a number of the organizations that were formed after World War II. But there's an international dimension to Canada's very survival and existence. And that's one way or the other we've got to tap the nerve of the young Canadians to look beyond the border and still proudly be a Canadian. Thank you, Mr. Taylor. I would like to call Alison Daglish-Pato, director of the Canadian Club, to the podium. Well, thank you, Ken. We're very honored that you could join us today. Your experience has given you a rare opportunity in which to think and see outside the box. When it comes to Canada and our place in the world, and certainly in your last statement, how we can be a little more ambitious, uh, particularly through the voice of our youth, in accomplishing that going forward. It may, may well be that to deal with the scope and pace of change we're starting to see in the world, Canadians will need to change the way we see ourselves in our role. To our credit, and I know that sounds very un-Canadian, we do come at some of these global issues from one of the best possible vantage points. Most of the world considers Canada to be a peaceful, orderly, and well-governed na nation. We don't always get it right, but our intentions are good. In most places, Canadians are seen as kind, caring, and committed to treating the rest of the world with a certain respect, tolerance, and fairness. The Canadian passport is well embraced, and backpackers will emblazon our country's flag on just about everything they can to get that international nod of acceptance on their foreign travels. We may still have a long way to go, but at least our reputation precedes us, and that's thanks largely to Canadians like you who represent us to the world. Thank you for being the calm, unassuming diplomat with the courage, wisdom, and humanity to do what's right, even in the most extreme of circumstances. Your efforts in the Iranian hostage crisis made you a hero of Canada and kept you forever placed in the hearts of Americans. I know this not just by your reputation, but by the corner table that Le Cirque holds for you in New York. That kind of real estate in one of Manhattan's most coveted restaurants can't be bought. It's reserved for the rarest of individuals, and having been there for lunch with you, I can testify that I watched with pride as a quiet wave of respect followed you in. So thank you for bringing that to our country and for being here today. Thank you, Allison. And thank you again, Mr. Taylor. And thanks once, uh, once again to Marsh Canada Limited for helping make today possible. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events.
Ladies and gentlemen in the audience, we'll have copies of uh, Our Man in Tehran for sale outside of the doors, and Mr. Taylor has graciously agreed to sign uh, any copies that you might have. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>